This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear My Life is a Joke by Sheila Hetty, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 2015. If there had not been a twinge of anxiety in me that something still needed to be said, I would still be in the ground. The story was chosen by Otessa Moshveg, who's the author of one short story collection and three novels, including Eileen, which won the Penn Hemingway Award for Fiction, and My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which will be published later this month. Hi, Otessa. Hi, Deborah. So Sheila Hetty published her first story collection in Canada, where she's from, in 2001, when she was 24, but her breakthrough book in a lot of ways was How Should a Person Be, which she called a novel from life, and that was published here in 2012. Was that what you first read by her? No, this is the first thing I read the story. by Sheila Hetty. Really? Yes. <laughs> have you gone back and read the book? I didn't want to. I, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't want to have a context for this story. Uh-huh. It seemed so singular, so weird. Right. So much about the creative process of writing short stories in general uh-huh. that I didn't want I don't want to know who Sheila Hetty is. I just want <laughs> I, I just wanted to talk I'm sure I'll go and read her work yeah. like, after I've processed this with you. <laughs> but It's a funny thing to say about Sheila Hetty because so much of her work is about who she is mm-hmm. uh, and about using her own identity in her fiction. So in a way, if you've read this story, maybe you do know more about her than you think. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. But I think it's – I mean, I – personally, for my work – I would rather have somebody have having a conversation about a story and not about me. Yeah. Right? So, sorry, Sheila. <laughs> I loved your story. I'm sure I'll get to know the rest of your work later. And did you read this when it came out in 2015? No, I found this. I, I, I was going through the archive. This uh-huh. one rang a different kind of bell for me. It's like, wow, how does this work? And I wanted to investigate how it worked. I mean, as a writer, how did she do this? Where does a story begin where does it reinvent itself? Where? Why am I confused? And why does this make so much sense? <laughs> and then the more I investigated, the more I was like, no, no, I don't actually want to figure this out. There's something kind of sacred and beautifully perfect about it and the way that things happen when a story is inspired. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to make you talk about it and okay. investigate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. Well, then I think we should probably dive right in. Let's do it. <laughs> And we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Otessa Moshveg reading My Life is a Joke by Sheila Hetty. My life is a joke. When I died, there was no one around to see it. I died all alone. It's fine. Some people think it's a great tragedy to die all alone with no one around to see it. My high school boyfriend wanted to marry me because he thought the most important thing to have in life was a witness. To marry your high school girlfriend and have her with you all through life, that is a lot of witnessing. Everything important would be witnessed by one woman. I didn't like his idea of what a wife was for, someone to just hang around and watch your life unfold. But I understand him better now. It is no small thing to have someone who loves you see your life and discuss it with you every night. Instead of marrying him, 
I married no one. We broke up. I lived alone. I had no children. I was the only witness to my life while he found a woman to marry, then had a child using fertility. Her family of origin is large and lives near them, same with his family of origin. I visited them one time, and at his birthday dinner there were 30 relatives and close friends, including their only child. We were at the home of his wife's parents, in the small coastal town where they were building their lives. He got exactly what he wanted. He has 30 reliable witnesses. Even if half of them die or move away or come to hate him, he still has 15. When he dies, he will be surrounded by a loving family who will remember when he still had hair, who will remember every night that he came home stinking drunk and yelling, who will remember his every failure and love him in spite of it all. When all his witnesses die, his life will be over. When his son is dead, and his son's wife is dead, and the children of his son are also dead, the life of my first boyfriend will be through. When I drew my last breath, no one saw me. The car that hit me drove quickly away, and a driver stopped to carry me out of the center of the road. I was already dead when he carried me, so I can say I died alone. Now, you can probably tell that I'm lying. If I really am okay with the fact that no one I loved witnessed my death, why did I come all the way back here from the dead? Why did I put on the flesh of my body and the clothes I wore my last day on earth? Why did I resume the voice I spoke with when I was living and return to the weight I was at the time of my death? I even washed the dirt out of my eyes and my hair, settled my teeth in the places in my mouth where they were before they got knocked out. Why did I bother doing that? It was a lot of work. I could have stayed in the ground for eternity. I could have stayed there disintegrating if I felt that my life was resolved. If there had not been a twinge of anxiety in me that something still needed to be said, I would still be in the ground. Here is the thing. I was a joke, and my life was a joke. The last man I loved, not my high school boyfriend, told me this during our final fight. I was 34 at the time. During the fight, as I was trying to explain my version of things, he shouted, You are a joke, and your life is a joke. The night before, we loved each other still. We went to bed at the same time, and as he read a popular crime novel on his phone, I fell asleep on my pillow, gently touching his arm. A few days later, I died. It has taken me since that time, four years, to understand the full significance of what he said, that I was a joke and my life was a joke. At the moment he said it, I didn't know how to reply. I was so hurt, I just began bawling. This only proved to him that he was correct. I stared at him with an open mouth. Of course, I was used to his cruelties by then, but still it hurt. When I received your invitation to come speak here tonight, didn't you know I had died? You did not. 
When I received your invitation, at first I thought, no, I cannot come. The truth is, I had no reason to. But then a few months later, I wrote you a note. I'll come if you pay to dig me up, if you'll pay to fly my corpse across North America from where I am buried and wheel me to the mic stand, then yes, I'll come. As I flew, I worked so hard to keep in my dead brain what I wanted to say. It was the whole reason I'd said yes. I had something important to declare. What was it? Have I said it already? Thoughts slipped from a dead brain so quickly, I can't remember if I said it. Lying there under the ground, salt and soil and sweat and worms and seedlings and saplings and the bones of dried birds collecting in my mouth and my blood caked dry and my toes curled up and my brain filled with hair and the feathers of birds and the little white balls of whatever it is that sometimes specks the soil, those little styrofoam balls and the shit of dogs and the piss of skunks and the seedlings, and the saplings, and the acorns, and the raisins. It is so amazing I could think down there in that total wet darkness. You never know, lying in the ground, what your niggling thought will be. You can take only one thought with you to the grave, and invariably it is a thought that bugs you, something that must be thought all the way through to the end before you find peace. The thought I took was of a man I loved, saying, You are a joke, and your life is a joke. It cleaved to my head and my muscles and my bones until I was nothing but those words. When my life collapsed inward, which is what death is, life collapsing deep into itself, that phrase remained outside the collapsing. It became a thing separate from me. And because it was separate from me, I could take it with me. It was the only thing I had. Could I have a glass of water, please? Where is my water? I am parched, and I am dead. Tomorrow I will be on an airplane home, down there with all the luggage, peace in my bones, having declared what I came here to declare, what I realized when I was underground, Then I will be dead for the rest of eternity, never having to brush myself off. The man who said I was a joke and my life was a joke, he may not have been there in my final moments, witnessing my final breath, but what I realized was he foretold my death. He could only have foretold it by seeing me to my core, by having been my soul's witness. When he said those awful words, he witnessed me into the future, a future he knew I would meet. During our fight, I tried to convince him that he was wrong. I'm not a joke, I cried. You're the joke. You're the joke. When a person slips on a banana peel and dies, then her life is a joke. Slipping on a banana peel is not how I died. When a person walks into a bar with a rabbi, a priest, and a nun, and that is how she dies, then her life is a joke. That is not how I died. When a person is a chicken 
who crosses the road to get to the other side, and that is how she dies, then her life is a joke. Well, that is how I died, as a chicken crossing the road to get to the other side. When I crossed the road that day, it was to the other side I was heading. That was how much despair I felt, our fight still in my mind. Why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side. A suicide. The other side is death. Everyone knows that, right? I scurried out in front of that rusty old car and smashed myself into the metal. My teeth pushed back into my throat by the fender, my chest completely run over. I didn't come here to depress you. I came here to tell you a joke, or rather, to show you a joke. Me. And to brag that I was witnessed. That first boyfriend of mine, he doesn't live far from here. Perhaps he is in the audience, listening, having a beer. I hope he's here. My life and death were witnessed, I tell you. Witnessed and foretold. You did not fare any better than me. It seems both of us won in the end. What a chicken I was. I couldn't bear any aspect of living. Especially that old custom that you have to live better than everyone else. What is the other side like, you may be wondering. Since I'm here, I might as well tell you. It's a ridiculous place where everyone is always laughing. It's like something I experienced once on a transcontinental flight. This woman beside me laughed at every dumb joke in whatever show she was watching, literally every joke the show made. Then she watched another show, then another one. Her laughter filled our row of seats. She didn't stop laughing from takeoff to landing. How a person's laughter can make you hate her. Don't the laughers of the world know this? Do they think it makes them lovable? Who likes to hear someone laughing to herself, headphones on while staring at a screen? Probably the same people who like to listen to strangers fuck behind a hotel wall. Over there on the other side, it's like that all the time. The dogs laugh, the trees laugh, everyone laughs, whether there's anything funny or not. I practiced this speech on the other side before an audience of 16 people, and it took four hours from beginning to end as I waited after saying each sentence for the laughter to subside. Here on earth, it is different, of course. The quiet of the living is one of the great reliefs. Is death the same for everyone? Or is this laughing world a death made just for me? How can I know for sure? Does anything I'm saying make any sense? I'm self-conscious about my speaking. Does my voice sound all right? When you are dead, it's difficult to carry a thought. My head feels stuffed with cotton batting. My eyes feel stuffed with cotton balls. My ears feel plugged up with cotton. It is hard to think, to string meaning to meaning. I did not come here to tell you I love you. Is that what you think I'm saying? I only loved two men ever. One of them wanted to marry me, and the other thought my life was a joke. 
my first boyfriend found himself a witness, and I have come to declare that I found one too. I won, you see? I won. I won the best thing a person can win, to be seen. I declare it here today. It's the only reason I crawled into my flesh to stand here before you, a joke on this stage. His words no longer hurt me. They make me feel so proud. Why did the chicken cross the road? That's me. I am the chicken. And I got to the other side. He knew this would happen when he spoke those words. How beautiful to be seen. That was Otessa Moshveg reading My Life is a Joke by Sheila Hetty. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 2015. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Otessa, one of the things that makes this story work is the fact that it feels, even when you read it on the page, it feels read aloud. It feels in a way like a a stand-up comedy monologue or something. Um... And in fact, it was written originally to be read aloud. It was written for an event at, uh, I think, Hugo House, a writer center in Seattle, which had a theme, um, laugh after death. And <laughs> strange theme, <laughs> strange theme. And, and Sheila Hetty did have to fly across the country to go and, and 
read this story. So what I was going to say is it's a story that you can't take literally, but maybe in some ways you can take it literally. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I love about the story is I didn't get that we were being talked to Mm -hmm. in that way until a couple pages in where she she gestures towards why she's there to give the speech. Right. So then I'm like, oh, I've been reading a speech. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's so strange about the prompt. La- la- was it laugh after death? Laugh after death. Yeah. Writing is so weird. I mean, that, that <laughs> to know that now makes this even weirder. Be- I mean, I'm just imagining being heady and like okay how do i how do i approach that prompt and start starting off with the thing that comes at the end really which is that asking herself if she's created this afterworld of ridiculous laughter what do you think mm. of that vision of the afterlife a place where everyone just laughs constantly and also a place where you're only allowed to take this one sort of unresolved nagging thought with you well <laughs> i believe that is true <laughs> that's, I, I mean, that's what we have to look forward to. I mean, I think that's why people pray and and why certain people try really hard to have their first thought in, in any instance of stress or ecstasy or whatever to be something good because they believe that when you die, you're, you're going to die with that thought. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's true. I mean, I don't think that anyone actually dies thinking like, Oh shit! I forgot to buy toilet paper. Um, obviously, I don't know. Nobody knows what it's like to die. But um, that 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 after after world of ridiculous laughter. I mean, there was something that I was like, yes, of course it's going to be like that. Of course it's going to be a world of total absurdity, where all where human emotion, our sensitivities, and the drama and the heartache. Like, of course, that's all disposed of. Everything is ridiculous. Everything is absurd. There's something satisfyingly obscene about imagining that. Satisfyingly awful. I mean, <laughs> yeah, to go through all of this and then be stuck sitting next to the woman on the plane who won't stop laughing at her sitcom. You know? but, but but there's comfort in knowing too that after you're dead, your mind doesn't work the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the narrator makes that very clear. You know, it's really hard to hold a thought into my head. And maybe we had a different reading because I didn't see the laughter as that annoying. Right. I thought that the comparison with the woman laughing on the plane, like, yeah, in close quarters on a plane when you're stressed, when you're alive, that sounds annoying. But if you can barely hold on to what you're thinking and people are just laughing at everything, there doesn't sound like they're laughing, like cackling, like satanically. <laughs> it's like they're just laughing like you would at a funny TV show. There was something comforting to me. Maybe I'm weird, but <laughs> that didn't sound that bad. I, I feel as though this story is about, one of the things it's about is is what happens when you take things too literally. Mm. The boyfriend makes this, what we would make as a throwaway remark, you know, you want to insult someone, you say, oh, you're a joke or your life is a joke. Um, and she goes out and says, well, okay, which joke am I going to embody? Am I going to slip on a banana peel? No, I'm going to be the chicken crossing the road. Do you think it's sort of a failure of of figurative language or a failure of comedy? No. I actually really believe that her boyfriend was foretelling her future. Mm -hmm. 
I sort of do believe that everything happens for a reason, that there is a synchronicity in the universe, and that he didn't say that by accident. But of course, it seems like because that was the thing that was stuck in her mind, it's the thing that she's had to resolve, and so she's created this logic. And the logic of the story is really what I think is miraculous. Um, it's strange logic. So she's created this logic to explain why he said that in a way that resolves her anxiety about not having been seen. Mm-hmm. You know, like she's turned that insult into something beautiful and validating. That is such a great way to look at life. <laughs> <laughs> to look at to look at your suicide as as the chicken crossing the road to get to the other side. Yeah, the the, the death itself. I, I love the description of her teeth and her chest and oh you know it's and and then she immediately says like I didn't come here to depress you (laughs) like please like don't be so sensitive um, you know I just like got hit by a car it's not a big deal but I mean I mean the levity is really important too and um but that's that's what the story is about I mean death is a place where people are laughing all the time yeah I mean just this this idea that in this woman's life she had two boyfriends or she had two loves each of them said something cruel or implied something cruel the first one wasn't cruel but he implied that if she were did not have a witness to her life it won't would not have been worth living the second one says something cruel and these two things become maybe not the guiding force of her life but the guiding force of her death in that she tries to reconcile these two ideas. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, do you think we could read it all completely metaphorically, that, you know, this boyfriend says a nasty thing, breaks up with her, and she dies metaphorically, and it's taken her all of this time to pull herself back together and, and resolve these thoughts? You could read it that way, for sure. <laughs> but, there, I mean, I, I think... The, sh- the story is asking for a suspension of decision about the point of view. It keeps kind of not redefining itself, but defining itself further um, as the story goes along. And I know that it's not true, but I'm, I'm attentive and listening. And there are a lot of true things that come out in the story. I mean, there are aphorisms even mm-hmm. that, feel, that resonate. In, and the story is... Um, I mean, it feels it's a little bit scary. I mean, there, there's something scary about it. And, and what you pointed out about the, the two relationships, there might be one reading, like maybe a feminist reading or something, not that I know about how people read these things, um, that there's something sort of unfair that what she would come away with is just what her boyfriend's said, you know? Like, oh, that's kind of lame. Like, what about the rest of your life? But in a story like this that, it's a narrow voice that's navigating. Like, you can't... She couldn't have that much baggage, right? She's she's just dealing with a sentence, my life is a joke, and it has to come from somewhere. She's not a round character. She's not totally flat either, but it's a voice. Yeah, and, a voice. and it may have to do with the fact that she could only take that one thought mm-hmm. with her right. to the grave. You know, the rest is... Has sort of rotted away into that graphically described soil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, 
if the story is really about an idea and really conceptual, which it is in some ways, why do we get these, you know, detailed descriptions of the the skunk piss and the acorns and the raisins and the little styrofoam balls and so on? Why, why are we getting that level of sort of tactile description? Well, I think that the narrator is trying to seduce you a little bit. Be like, just imagine what it's like. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what it feels like and smells like, and how wet and dark it is, and how kind of gross, but also, you know, you know that soil. It's a soil that you. Those styrofoam balls are a really interesting detail because they're so familiar, but we would never really think about them unless we were buried in the ground. I mean, like, <laughs> what are? Yeah, what are those really? I think those are. There are moments in the story that it becomes very literary. I mean, when when it moves into those sort of descriptions, um, and I and it does feel like a seduction f- for the listener slash reader. Do you think that the story is meant to be funny or meant to be cynical or nihilistic? How are we are we supposed to walk away feeling, you know, uplifted or sort of <laughs> downlifted? I'm not sure the story is trying to control that. I think the story is a little bit weirder than that, than have an experience and there's a resulting emotion left over. And I, I, I got that when I read the sentence, I was the only one to witness my life while he, the boyfriend, found a woman to marry, then had a child using fertility. The awkwardness of that using fertility, it's I knew it wasn't a mistake. I mean, am I right that that's not yes. exactly how you describe it? No, there's a lot it. of lines that are that are yeah. feel quite purposefully awkward. So you have the juxtaposition of language, like what she uses to describe the soil, which mm-hmm. is, as you said, quite literary. And then things like, um, you know, I resumed my voice. Like, mm-hmm. there, there were another. There were quite a few examples of using fertility or his family of origin, of these strange locutions, which feel awkward, mm-hmm. which feel, oh, he's, well, someone who's really a writer wouldn't speak that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you think she uses that language? I wonder if it was at first instinctual to throw the voice off center mm-hmm. so that we know that we're maybe not actually listening to a real human being with a mind like our own. There is something that feels wrong I, I don't know it's mis- it's mysterious yeah that space that that using fertility that awkwardness created for me which is why I fell in love with the story it's not a canned voice like let me tell you what it's like to die you know <laughs> and this is a strange space that is scary also very familiar and uh, resonant so there's some things that can't be explained, maybe. <laughs> so Hetty's brother is a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. And I, I read a really interesting conversation that the two of them did together where he said, I, he said, I think for me the comedic impulse comes from the same place as the philosophical one. They're both in response to something more fundamental, which is a sense of the absurd or disquietude or a feeling that something is off or is not as it should be or as you want it to be. And you can draw on those things to make a philosophical argument or to make comedy. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what she's doing here? 
Certainly. <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the things that she's doing. I mean, the thing I like about what her brother said is that, to me, it sort of underlies or it underlines the truth of how all that happens in a way, which is that we can never be right. Everything is a performance. I mean, that is why it's so absurd. Everything is a performance. Every line of thinking that we have even privately, how do we know what we actually believe or what is actually true? We're just experiencing what we think in the moment that we're alive in. And, and I think in literature, especially this kind of voice-driven narrative, short story, that's also a big, a big part of it, the absurdity of just being in one moment and making a declaration. Nothing is true, but I'm going to say it anyway because I need to declare something so that I can get through this moment. She also goes out of her way to make us feel that discomfort. You know, she, she makes us imagine a corpse being shipped across the country and propped up in a wheelchair and pushed out on stage in front of us. Why do you think she wants us to visualize these things? Well, I think she's trying to horrify us a little bit. The body responds when it imagines a dead body. Like, like I, I can feel a feeling in my body that's kind of like, uh, and it reminds me of things that I've experienced. The reality of that, that I'm just going to be rotting one day, is uncomfortable. And yet it doesn't feel aggressive to me. I mean, she doesn't actually describe being rolled out on stage in a wheelchair, but you inferred that that was what what was going on and I hadn't thought of it that way I had thought of her voice as more disembodied until she describes getting having to get on the plane but then she says that she goes back with all the luggage you know because now at that point her body's useless like it's done its job I mean I think she is sort of trying to make us afraid a little afraid a little horror a little comedy what are we what are we supposed to be afraid of oh god uh, impermanence like the like we're all gonna die that is it is a joke Mm -hmm. you know life is a joke death seems to be a joke too (laughs) like how seriously can we take it but obviously very seriously i mean it is very serious what she's saying in, in in its essence that she has come here to declare that she has won because she has she has now seen that she was witnessed. I mean, she, in in a way, figured it out, you know? And she wants to be witnessed witnessing her own witnessing. (laughs) (laughs) Witnessing is also, you know, she plays on that word a lot, and it's also sometimes, you know, used as a a biblical term. Mm -hmm. You bear witness to God. Um, Do you think that's an undercurrent here, some form of... Theology. I was. I am. I. I don't ever go there. Yeah. I, I don't ever go to <laughs> theology. Um, but the idea of witnessing, witnessing and being witnessed seems more and more important in our everyday life, especially with technology right now. Everybody wants to get liked or like whatever. Um, and wants to be heard and seen, even if they have almost nothing to say. People don't seem to be thinking things through before they post them. 
but then you have to stick to them in order to not have been a hypocrite. There's a lot of there's a lot of witnessing, and I don't know how how if it's actually the kind of beautiful witnessing that is important, like that's being described in this story. Um, but but the kind of witnessing that's being described in the story is something that I think everybody can relate to very deeply. Anybody who's ever felt unseen by somebody you love or, you know, dismissed or overlooked, any middle children out there, <laughs> you know, everybody feels like we we do die all alone. I mean, I think that's also one of the great existential fears is if, if you know, if you've ever like spent too much time alone, maybe part of you starts to wonder if this is all made up, if any of this is actually real. Someone was once uh, explaining to me the conception of the universe. It started with a particle, and the particle wanted to experience itself, so it uh, split into two particles. So that I could have an objective experience of being. It's really other people are really important. <laughs> we need them, um, or some people do. Yeah. At the same time, hell is other people. Right. Well, life For is hell. life. Hell. Life is hell. <laughs> I mean, hell is an hell is an experience, right? And and for this character, hell is is laughing people. Do you think she's in hell? Or maybe it's limbo, right? Because she's still unresolved. Maybe now she can go back to another form of afterlife. Mm. Maybe it was once she once she resolved that last nagging thought, she could move on. I I imagined her being at peace now. Yeah. Yeah. Because she, she took something, she took an insult and turned it into that shared experience and that witnessing. Mm-hmm. So, all right, she's won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good for her. Um, you said at the beginning that, that this story, you felt there was something about how one writes a story mm-hmm. inside it. What did you mean by that? The story seems to be propelled by its own voice. It's, it's, it starts off, you know, when I died, there's no one around to see it. I died all alone. It's fine. That sentiment. And then it becomes so much more than just that voice starting off. And there's something about the creative act, which depends on itself, on that first stroke of the pencil or whatever, the paintbrush. Everything has to refer back to that. I mean, if, if you can talk about art as having DNA, it's sort of like the DNA is all in that first line. And then, it, and then it unfolds. I mean, we start off, it's a personal telling that seems, you know, there's something sort of banal about it. I had this boyfriend. Oh, I didn't marry him. He married someone else. Now he's got everything he wants, and I'm dead, you know. <laughs> um, but then now you can probably tell that I'm lying, then now we get into like the second dimension of the story. I, I've I've have done all this work to come back here to talk to you. Like, how can you say like? Of course, I'm not really okay with the fact that um no one I loved witnessed my death. And then you you know you see the narrator working it out logically, out loud. I was a joke. You know this is true. And then the story of how that that line got stuck in her mind, this this fight that she had with her other boyfriend. 
and then we get the that really tactile reality of being dead and buried with a consciousness which is really disturbing which i think is the fear of death that i mean i think my fear of death is that oh god like what if i am what if my mind is still alive and i have to experience all of eternity with this mind and still in in my skull yeah I mean, it's such a, it's such a purposeless fear, too. I mean, it's like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I die, you know. <laughs> um, that is hell. That is hell. The idea that we would live for all of eternity with the consciousness is the same consciousness. Feels like hell. A consciousness that was is aware that it is dead. So yeah, and I mean, not, now we're thinking really deeply about life and death in the story. It isn't just, oh, I had this boyfriend. It's not a stand-up routine. Right. And, and then there's this strange move where, could I have a glass of water, please? Like, what kind of corpse needs a glass of water? <laughs> I mean, then, and then it's like, okay, don't, like, let's not forget this is a performance, a performance within a performance in some, in some ways. I mean, the story kind of goes, like, turns back in on itself at that point. And we get a kind of retelling of the whole, you're a joke, your life is a joke. And then this other approach to that statement, which is, you know, when you slip on a banana peel and die, you're a joke. And then, you know, I was the chicken crossing the road. And then, and then an analysis of that joke as crossing the road to the other side, like the other side. You know, she's right. The other side is death. How did that? How did that never occur to me before? I mean, maybe because it was a child, like a childhood joke. How did the chicken mm-hmm. cross the road? Um, to get to the why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? God, what a weird joke! <laughs> I don't think I've ever really thought about it before. Um, Not a very funny one. It is. It, it, it was never funny. Yeah. And then that play of words to get to the other side, a suicide. It's corny. Yeah. I don't get it. Why'd she do that? <laughs> but but then it's like the other side is death. Everyone knows that, right? I mean, there's something like the way that she's she's using that corniness or the, this canned darkness, this tough look at life and death with this also imperfect sense of comedy is it's what is what's interesting. I mean, I, I love that the narrator is losing. I can feel when when she's her mind is moving correctly and she's like, OK, I can do it. I can do it. I'm dead. And these thoughts are hard, hard to hold on to. But I'm there and I'm speaking and I'm making my declaration. And then uh, these other moments where the paragraphs kind of get shorter, the, the thoughts are more uh, and then this, you know. I feel dead. Right? I mean, there, there's there, there's something about that, or you know what? It reminds me of having a fever or something. You know, I, I can't quite capture my own thoughts, and yet the voice is really strong. I mean, I mean, like, so many things are true about this story. There isn't the reason I love it that is that there there wasn't just one way to look at it, and it's not telling me exactly how to read it either. I I, I love this that she said. Couldn't bear any aspect of living, especially that old custom that you have to live a better life than everyone else. 
I'm sort of annoyed that she could put it so simply, <laughs> you know? And it, I don't know. Do you feel like that? <laughs> I think she did it very well. Yeah. But but that you have to live a, a better life than everyone else. That is exactly how I feel. And it is so idiotic. It's a it's the pressure. It is it's a vain it is vanity. Mm-hmm. And it is exactly what makes me miserable. That I <laughs> that I think that my life should be better than it is. Right. That I can't just have it this way and go with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are moments that I feel that way, and it's easier to feel that way when my life is going really well. But the pressure to have to live a better life than everyone else is so heartbreaking in its wastefulness. And, and you know, like mo- moments like that in the story, maybe to someone else it's like a throwaway. You know, but to me it really, it really hit home. Your life as a joke is a throwaway to yeah. most people. right. <laughs> right. The, and then we get this description of hell or the afterlife or whatever you want to call it as this maybe unbearable place of laughter. To me, it didn't sound that bad. At least she's not alone. It, what I love about it is that she practiced the speech. <laughs> and it took four hours. It took four hours because <laughs> it was that funny. <laughs> well, because they'll laugh at anything. Right. You know? I can't figure out whether, you know, when I was reading it out loud, I was like, is she bragging that it took that long? Is she complaining? There's that, there, there's sort of two things being held simultaneously. I don't quite know. Mm-hmm. And then she, and then she asks, like, is, is that the same for everyone? Or is this laughing world of death made just for me? How can I know for sure? You can't ever know. No, no. We may all have our own personal afterlives. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and I think that's true for, like, the experience of life, too. I mean, we have language, and we can correctly miscommunicate sometimes <laughs> about the what we experience. And I think that's a lot of what writers do is try to do that. Um, let me try to express through language this really strange experience I'm having within myself. I'm not even sure that you're real, you know? But maybe if I talk to you and you're my witness... It will feel real. That's the story reminded me of, the singular consciousness making the attempt to be witnessed. And that is what the story is in itself. I mean, whether you you say it's the attempt of the narrator or the the attempt of the author. But I loved that. It's so honest. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Sheila Hetty is a Canadian writer whose works of fiction include the collection The Middle Stories and the novels How Should a Person Be and Motherhood, which was published earlier this year. Matessa Moshfeg's story collection, Homesick for Another World, was a New York Times notable book in 2017, and her third novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, comes out this month. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>